0: Well, let's begin in prayer and ask God for his help. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, we live in a world of hoaxes. We live in a world of deceptions and conspiracies and scams. You take the internet, for example. Rarely does a week go by where I don't receive an email from somebody trying to scam me. Last week, I received an email from a very generous man from Nigeria. A man man who wants to share with me his $20 million fortune. If only I help him get the money out of the country by giving him my bank account details. You don't get much more generous than that, do you? A couple of weeks back, I received an email from Westpac uh, asking me to confirm my banking details with them. I bank with the National And then there are those chain emails. You know, the ones, um, people warning me about those people that are trying to steal my kidneys, Um, (laughs) warning me about um, those flesh-eating bananas, about those uh, computer viruses that are supposed to fry my hard drive, all this sort of stuff, and then I'm expected to pass it on to all my friends to warn them. You know, they're all hoax emails that depend on the good-natured gullibility of people to pass them on. And let's face it, people are pretty gullible. On our recent youth group camp, uh, one of the kids informed me that if you say the word green very, very slowly out loud, it sounds like the word gullible. And to their delight, I was. (laughs) Sometimes people are quite gullible. And people are ready to take advantage of that gullibility. Sometimes all we've got to lose is our pride. But sometimes it can be rather more serious. Uh, You may well recall in 1997, uh, Marshall Applewhite of the Heaven's Gate sect, how he convinced 37 people that there was a UFO travelling behind the Hale-Bopp comet. Do you remember this? And how he was able to able to persuade them to kill themselves so that their souls could then travel on this spaceship and go to heaven. People are gullible, and sometimes that gullibility can cost them dearly. And it would be the same if Christianity was found out to be a hoax. At best, if Christianity was determined to be a hoax, then it would make a complete mockery of our greatest hopes. It would make a complete mockery of all the sacrifices that we have made in the name of Jesus over the years. At worst, well, at worst it would be a hoax that has perhaps kept us from the real truth of of Islam or Mormonism or whatever, a hoax which has set us on a path straight to hell. Either way, it would be a very cruel hoax indeed. Let's face it. Christianity stands or falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the absolute cornerstone of our faith. And then yet, if you think about it, the idea of a man coming back from the dead, well, it's up there with flesh-eating bananas and UFOs. As one of my scripture kids asked me this past week, couldn't it all just be a fisherman's tale? Well, when Luke wrote the Book of Acts, he wrote it with a very specific purpose in mind. He wrote it to a man named Theophilus, and he wrote it in order to convince him that Christianity was no hoax. In the opening sentences of his two work series, Luke wrote, It seemed to me, it seemed good to me to write an account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. See, Luke wrote Acts in order to convince Theophilus that Christianity was no hoax. And so it seems to me a very good place for us to go to, to determine for ourselves whether or not we should hit the delete button on Christianity once and for all, as we would for any hoax email. So today we're going to look at this passage in Acts. But before we get there, let me give you a little bit of background of where we're up to you remember that the Apostle Paul has now been back in the city of Jerusalem. He's now returned from his uh, mission to the Gentiles. And that mission is now completed. He's finished. It's now about 25 years since Paul had become a Christian. And the nature of Judaism in that time had changed dramatically. Now, there were lots of groups within Judaism, all, all of which Christianity was just one. See, no longer did the Jews persecute Jewish Christians for their belief that Jesus was the Messiah. There were now lots of Jewish groups that existed, all living side by side with their own different beliefs. Now, the hot topic, now the news of the day, was the tensions between the Jews and the Gentiles, In fact, in only a few years from the point where we're up to in Acts, in only a few years, there's going to be a great war that will break out between the Jews and between the Gentiles, particularly their Roman oppressors. So at this time, Jewish-Gentile tensions are at an all-time high. And it's on account of these tensions that a bunch of Jews from the province of Asia or Western Turkey are able to stir up some pretty serious trouble for the Apostle Paul. There he is. He's in the temple, and these Asian Jews recognise him. They know who he is. They see him there, and they shout out at the top of their lungs to all the people that can hear. They shout out that this Paul has been teaching against their Jewish ways. And worse, they claim that he has even brought a Gentile into the Jewish part of the temple. Now, that's not true, But it caused a huge problem for Paul. The whole city is whipped up into a frenzy. Look with me at what happens. Acts chapter 21 from verse 27. Acts 21, 27. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. Now don't underestimate what's going on here. Paul is in serious trouble. He is this close. From having the living daylights bashed out of him. You see, bringing a Gentile into the Jewish part of the temple, it was a crime punishable by death. Yeah, Paul's innocent, but the crowd don't think that. And so they're about to kill him. And they would have killed him if somebody didn't come to his rescue. As it turns out, he's rescued by the commander of the Roman troops. In fact, this is the first of a number of times that we're going to see this Roman commander uh, rescue Paul over the next day or so. The commander, he sees Paul being attacked, and so he's, he's able to stop the crowd. And the commander orders that Paul be chained up. And then he turns to the crowd and he asks them, why are you beating this man? Well, of course, the crowd aren't going to give him a straight answer. It's not like they're going to admit that they want to kill Paul because he's been inviting Jewish, uh, Gentile dogs to come and be a part of their religion. The Roman commander's a Gentile. That's not going to go down too well with him. So the commander can't get to the truth of the matter. So he orders that Paul be taken off to the barracks at which the, crowd, the angry crowd lunges forward again trying, trying to get their hands on him um, in an attempt before he's taken off. Read with me from verse 31. 31. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted, one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get to the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, away with him. Now this close again, isn't he? This close again to being lynched by this mob. Um, Second time, so close to death. And so it's what comes next that really flaws me. There's a bit of confusion over Paul's identity. The commander thinks that maybe he's an Egyptian terrorist. That's why the crowd's angry with him. But Paul sets him right. He says, no, I'm actually a Jew. And then Paul asks the commander a favour. And it's this favour that really floors me. He asks, he asks him, well, I won't tell you what he asks him. You look with me. Look for yourself. Let's pick it up in verse 39. Paul answered, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. Please let me speak to the people. You've got to be kidding. You know, here he is. They've been trying to kill him. He's been taken away to safety. And he's going, can I go back and have a bit of a fireside chat with these people, please? It's crazy. Perhaps um, seeing an opportunity to finally find out what's going on, the the commander gives Paul permission to speak to the people. So Paul is able to quieten the crowd by speaking to them in their Jewish vernacular in Aramaic. He quietens them and then Paul offers them his testimony. He speaks of how he too had lived the life of a zealous Jew. How he had been trained in the Jewish law under the best of teachers how he was zealous for Jewish ways. He shared with them his testimony, how, how there was once a time when he even hunted Christians down to kill them. But then he tells them how all of that, in an instant, changed. He tells them of how he had an encounter... With the risen Lord Jesus, an event which could be attested to by his travelling companions, an event which could be attested to by the godly uh, Jew named Ananias, who was living in Damascus. In other words, Paul is telling them how he became a Christian. Let's have a look at some of the highlights. Let's start at verse 40. Having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defence. Verse 3 of chapter 22. I am a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. Under Gamaliel, I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. Down to verse 6. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. Down to verse 11. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus. Because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood beside me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Now you notice here as Paul's going through his testimony, that nothing that he's said so far upsets those people that are listening They're really quite happy to sit there and hear all this. Remember that Christianity is fairly well accepted by this time. It's just another Jewish sect. Now, it's what Paul says next that really gets up the noses of these Jews. He goes on to tell them how how Jesus appeared to him a second time in the temple and how Jesus had told him at that time to leave Jerusalem... Because his testimony would not be accepted by the Jews there in Jerusalem. It's then that Paul drops the bomb. He tells them how Jesus had told him that he was now to fulfill another mission. A mission to none other than the Gentiles. And it's this that sends the crowd into its murderous frenzy once again. Let's pick it up, verse 17. Verse 17, when I returned to Jerusalem and was praying at the temple, I fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking. Quick, he said to me, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me. Down to 21. Then the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Then they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. I mean, is Paul mad? You've got to ask that question because with the Jewish-Gentile tensions the way they are at the moment, with the crowd almost killing him once, twice already today, well, for his, and trying to kill him for his Gentile associations, why on earth would he come out with this? He's either very, very mad or very, very bold. Of course, the mob go crazy again. The commander gets Paul out of there as quickly as possible before he's torn to shreds. And mind you, did you notice that the commander still hasn't gotten to the bottom of all this? He still doesn't know why the crowd wants to lynch Paul. Paul's speech wouldn't have helped. That was in Aramaic. He wouldn't have been able to understand that. But he assumes that Paul's been up to no good one way or another. And so the commander sets about interrogating Paul, Roman style, in order to get to the bottom of it all. He gives orders for Paul to be flogged and questioned. Now understand what this flogging entailed. This was not like the beatings that Paul had experienced previously. Now this flogging was with the flagellum, long uh, strips of thin leather uh, into which bits of bone and metal had been woven. If you've seen Passion of the Christ, you know what's going on here. This sort of flogging, it often resulted in death. It would probably maim Paul, and at the very least, it would leave him terribly scarred. It was all perfectly legal for Roman soldiers to use this sort of interrogation on slaves or on aliens in order to get confessions out of them. But, according to Roman law, it was quite illegal to perform such floggings on Roman citizens before they had a trial. And it's this technicality that gets Paul off the hook. Let's pick it up in verse 27. 27. The commander went to Paul and asked, "'Tell me, are you a Roman citizen?' "'Yes, I am,' he answered. Then the commander said, "'I had to pay a big price for my citizenship, "'but I was born a citizen,' Paul replied. "'Those who were about to question him,' I love it how they say question, question him, withdrew immediately.' The commander himself was alarmed when he realised that he had put Paul, a Roman citizen, in chains. This close again, isn't he? This close again to losing his life or at least suffering terribly. Some might say that it was uh, good luck that Paul happened to be born a Roman citizen. Others might say that it was God's sovereignty. Either way, he's off the hook again. Well, for the time being, at least. Because the commander... Still isn't finished with Paul. He still hasn't gotten to the bottom of how Paul could send the whole city into a spin. And so he calls a meeting of the Jewish high court. He calls a meeting of the Sanhedrin. Surely they'll know what Paul's done to cause such a stir. The Sanhedrin is a group headed up by the Jewish high priest, Ananias, not to be confused with the godly Ananias who was living in Damascus. Paul is brought in, he's stood before the Sanhedrin, he looks the members of the Sanhedrin in the eyes and he declares that before God himself, his conscience is clear. You know, it's a bit like Paul saying, look, fellas, I know you've been assembled so that you can make a judgment on me, so that you can judge, you know, the things I've been doing and saying, but look, God's already made his judgment on me and he has vindicated me. It's really quite bold, isn't it, of Paul. So bold, in fact, that the high priest orders that Paul be slapped across the mouth. Paul, he calls uh, the high priest a whitewashed wall, you know, an image of, um, a, a freshly painted wall just sort of covering it up, making it look nice and good, even though it's about to really top, uh, topple over. It's Paul's way of saying that God's judgment is upon this man. But when Paul is informed of who this man is, the high priest, he apologises. Read with me from chapter 23, verse 4. 23, 4. Those who were standing near Paul said, ''You dare to insult God's high priest?'' Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realise that he was the high priest, for it is written, Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. You know, it's as though the only time that Paul is ready to take a step back um, is when he's trying to please God. He's trying to be bold, he's trying to be godly at the same time. But Paul is also a man who is able to think very quick on his feet. Paul notices that this Sanhedrin is made up by two political religious factions. It's made up by the Sadducees and the Sadducees, and the the Pharisees. Two political religious factions that hated one another, and so he makes a comment that is yes, 100% true, but also 100% divisive. I love this bit. He says. Paul says he is a Pharisee on trial for his belief in the resurrection of the dead. What does he mean by that? Well, no doubt he means that he's on trial for his belief that Jesus is the one, uh, for all those who trust in him, Jew or Gentile, he is the one who will be able to raise them to life on the final day of history. Now, the Pharisees also believed in the resurrection of the dead, not on the basis of trust in Jesus, but they believed that God's people would be raised on the final day. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they never believed in that resurrection. They believed that when you were dead, you were dead. That was it. Game over. No more. And nor did the Sadducees believe in spirits and angels as the Pharisees did. So when Paul nails his colours to the mast and declares that he is a Pharisee, he knowingly puts himself at the centre of one of the most hotly debated topics of the time. The Pharisees don't want to say that Paul could not have had a heavenly vision on the road road to Damascus. Nor do they want to say that Paul's belief in the resurrection of the dead is wrong. And so they take this opportunity to side with Paul in order, not to defend him, but in order to defend their own beliefs in the side of the Sadducees. It's very clever of Paul. Look with me from verse 6. Then Paul, knowing that some of them were Sadducees and others Pharisees, called out in the Sanhedrin, My brothers, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. I stand on trial because of my hope in the resurrection of the dead. When he said this, a dispute broke out between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided, down to verse 10. The dispute became so violent that the commander was afraid Paul was about to be torn to pieces by them. He ordered the troops to go down and take him away from them by force and bring him into the barracks. This close again, this close again to being torn apart. And at the end of the day, the poor old commander, well, he still hasn't gotten to the bottom of what all, you know, what Paul has done to stir up the whole city. You know, you talk about a bad day at the office. This guy's had a terrible one. In the final verse of this morning's passage, it brings us to the night after Paul nearly loses his life, these four, five, six, I've lost count, all these times. It's there in the dimness of the barracks that Paul receives a visitor, none other than the Lord Jesus himself. His message? Take courage, Paul. Take courage because you're going to now go on to Rome and you're going to testify about me there too. Read with me verse 11. The following night, the Lord stood near Paul and said, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. What an encouraging visit that must have been for Paul that night, to be reminded by Jesus himself that um, he was still with him, that he was still fully aware of his circumstances, still on his side. You know, it would take Paul another three years to get to to, uh, to Rome and they would be very dangerous years indeed and how encouraging it must have been for Paul to know that no harm would come to him until he reached Rome and testified as the Lord said he would. And that's our passage for today. These uh, chapters that we've looked at this morning, they really provide us with one heck of a story, don't they? I mean, more Paul escaping death more times in one day than Jack Bauer does in that television program 24 if you watch it. But I think that uh, these chapters also offer us much more than just a good old yarn. Remember why they were written? Remember? They were written by Luke to provide Theophilus with the means to know with certainty those things which he had been taught about Christianity. See, I think that these chapters actually are actually able to help us determine whether Christianity is ultimately a hoax or not. For Christianity does stand or fall on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the absolute cornerstone of our faith. But I think it's in these chapters that we're able to determine for ourselves whether the resurrection is any different from stories of flesh-eating bananas or UFOs. You see, in these chapters, we're given Paul's testimony, uh, his testimony of his encounter with the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. And then we're also given his actions which followed that incident. I think it's as we consider his testimony and we consider his actions that we're left with three possible conclusions on Paul. All right, let's think about them. Firstly, firstly, we could conclude that Paul was a liar. We could conclude that he did not see the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus at all, that he made it up. We could conclude that. But then that would leave us with a number of questions that need answering. You've got to ask, why would Christianity's most passionate antagonist become its greatest ally and all in an instant? You've got to ask, what did he have to gain by lying in the first place? You know, Paul received nothing but hardship and suffering on account of his claims. He had it made as a Pharisee. But in creating a resurrection tr- hoax, the truth is Paul had nothing to gain. And everything to lose. It also means that you have to conclude that what we have here is a man who is prepared to die for a lie. Yeah, it's true that many people throughout history have been willing to die for their beliefs. But what makes Paul extraordinary is that he was in a position to actually know whether or not what he was professing was true. You compare that with the September 11 uh, suicide hijackers, for example. Now, I have no doubt that they sincerely believed in what they died for. But they certainly weren't in a position to know whether or not what they believed was true. They put their faith in the religious traditions that had been passed down to them from generation to generation. They were dependent on someone else's testimony. With Paul... Well, Paul was ready to seal his own testimony with his own blood. And I think that when we consider all of this, that is very difficult indeed for us to conclude that Paul was lying. Okay then, number two. We could conclude perhaps that Paul was mistaken. He was mistaken. Maybe we could conclude that his encounter with the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus was the result of some kind of hallucination, some kind of psychiatric episode. Marshall Applewhite of the Heaven's Gate sect, he truly believed that a UFO was travelling behind the Hale-Bopp comet. But then, years earlier, he had also checked himself into a psychiatric hospital, where he was diagnosed as being delusional and suffering from clinical paranoia. Could it have been the same for Paul? All right then, what about that? Well, it seems strange to me that up until his conversion, Paul seems to have been widely accepted as a strong, stable man of great intellect, a man who had been put into a position of responsibility. So if we're going to say that his mental state changed, then we would have to say that it changed in an instant. And if Paul did have an hallucination on the road to Damascus then how do we account for Paul's travelling companions also seeing the light, also hearing the voice? How do we account for the Lord's appearing to the godly Ananias, telling him exactly where to find Paul? If we were to account for the appearance of Jesus on the road to Damascus with something like a thunderstorm, then how do we account for the appearances of uh, of Jesus to Paul later on? Uh, not to mention the independent appearances of Jesus to to the rest of the disciples, uh, to more than 500 other people. If we conclude that Paul did nothing more than think he had seen the risen Lord Jesus, then how do we account for his sudden ability to perform miracles, you know, bringing people back from the dead and the like? I think that this conclusion actually raises more questions than it answers It just doesn't seem to hold water. And so we come to our third and final possible conclusion, that on the road to Damascus, Paul actually had a genuine encounter with the risen Lord Jesus and that in that encounter, Paul's life was changed forever. Could this be the answer? Well, a number of people have considered that it is the answer. Take, for example, the journalist Frank Morrison... Uh, He set out, actually, to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He wanted to set out and prove that it was nothing more than a hoax. But he ended up coming to the exact opposite conclusion. Many of you would have heard of the book, Who Moved the Stone? Well, he wrote it, and in it he writes, How can we account for the incident of Paul's conversion having the admittedly historical consequences that it did? Why should a man of this tough breed, of this admittedly sane and virile mental calibre, be uprooted in an instant from his cherished belief and swept like chaff before the wind into the dogmatic camp of his most hated enemies? After all the bitter persecutions and hardships on the great missions, why was one of the greatest intellects of the ages brought over and fixed in an instant of time from one pole of dogmatic belief into another? And Morrison's conclusion that Paul really did have a genuine encounter with the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus. Oxford University professor Lord Littleton also set out to prove Christianity to be wrong. He set out to prove that Paul didn't even become a Christian. And in the process, the professor himself became a Christian. He concluded, "...the conversion and apostleship of St Paul alone, duly considered, was of itself a demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be a divine revelation." And finally, even the Encyclopedia Britannica admits, many have found the radical transformation of this Pharisee of the Pharisees the most convincing evidence of the truth and the power of the religion of which he was converted, as well as the ultimate worth and place of the person of Christ. So there we go, there's our three possibilities. Paul was lying, Paul was mistaken, or Paul had a genuine encounter with the risen Lord Jesus. So let me ask you, what is your verdict going to be? Are you going to uh, hit the delete button on Christianity as you would with a hoax email? You've got to dismiss it all as you would with uh, UFO sightings or something like that. Well, I don't think that once we've considered the testimony and the actions of the Apostle Paul that we can reasonably, reasonably do either of these things. I think that if we are serious about determining the status of Christianity, then we must now realise that the burden of proof now lies with those who wish to show Christianity to be a hoax. The first two conclusions just don't work. Only the third rings true. For 25 years, Paul suffered in the service of Christ Everything he said and did, he attributed to the sight of the risen Lord Jesus. Friends, if this is true, then we must conclude that Jesus Christ really rose from the dead. We must conclude that the cornerstone of our faith is fixed and firm. That our hopes are certain. That our sacrifices have not been for nothing. That we can follow the, the Lord with great confidence. Not as gullible fools. Fools. But in the knowledge that Christianity is no hoax, but the greatest truth the world has ever heard. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Apostle Paul. We thank you for his great courage and the light of suffering. Thank you that he both testified with his lips and testified with his life that Jesus is alive. Father, we thank you that in the pages of Acts, we are given good reason to believe with certainty the things that we've been taught. Help us now to respond with lives of faith and obedience, forever rejoicing in that unshakable truth that Jesus is alive. Amen.